The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Hey, everybody grab your Bibles. Turn them to Luke 13, please. Luke chapter 13. How is everybody doing? Yeah? Four people. I'm... I'm okay. <laughs> Thank you, Holly Jesse, for asking. <laughs> yep, doing okay. Um, God is good. So uh, this sermon, uh, Satan really does not want you to hear this. <laughs> okay, so I just want you to understand that that uh, everything in you is going to all of a sudden not want to want to hear this, and uh, I know that because Satan has a way uh, of absolutely trying to block the power of the gospel. Um, but this text, man, this text is absolutely amazing. I'm excited to get into it with you guys. But before we do that, we need to pray. So, Lord, you know how much I need you, God. You, you, in fact, you know way more about how much I need you than I know how much I need you, Lord. But I just want to admit it. I just want to say it. I just want to declare, Lord, that I can't do this without you. Lord, I can't speak supernatural words. I can't, I can't explain the gospel in, in the scriptures uh, without your spirit empowering me, God. I just can't do it, which is terrifying, Lord, because I just have to trust you. But God, I do. I just trust you to work this morning. I trust you to speak this morning. And I pray that, Lord, you would unfold the scriptures to us in a way that would be life-altering, life-changing. God, this message, Lord, uh, not my message, Lord, but your message, God, it just needs to be preached and preached and heard and believed, God, and we just pray that you would do that this morning. God, we pray for the supernatural word to come this morning. No one in here cares about what I have to say, Lord. We care about what you have to say, and I stand in this pulpit, Lord, in reverence. I declare your word with reverence, God, recognizing this is not my authority. This is authority that has been, that is yours, God, and I'm just here to, to show everyone that it's all about you and that, that you are the king and that you are the Lord. And so God, we, we humbly, we just come before your word this morning. We submit ourselves under it. We say, you are our king, Lord Jesus. Speak. God, we wanna repent where we need to repent. We wanna believe where we need to believe. God, we wanna see you work where you wanna work, Lord. And that starts with us humbling ourselves and saying that you are God and we are not. So Lord, we look to you, Lord, as our ultimate source of salvation this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, I have a question for you. I want you to think about it. What is man's greatest enemy? What is man's greatest enemy? Uh, some of you might be thinking lots of different things. Uh, the first thing I thought when I thought of this question is evil. Surely the greatest enemy of man is evil. Evil permeates our world. It destroys the weak. Uh, it destroys the strong. Evil, uh, every year we have hundreds of thousands of murders and deaths and people that die in wars and, and there's so much evil in the world. Surely evil itself is the greatest enemy that, that is uh, waiting to destroy us in this room. Surely it is, but I'm actually here to tell you it's not. Evil's not the greatest enemy because evil actually has been defeated. I don't know if you heard about this or not. <laughs> okay, something happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus defeated evil. On the cross, he said, it is finished. So it's not evil. 
What is the greatest enemy of man? Is it death? Surely it's death, right? This wall, this impenetrable wall that all of us can't seem to get through or around, this thing that happens to everybody. I was just at a memorial yesterday of a dear brother here in our church um, that was packed out, (laughs) just packed out, a standing room only. And all of us in that room were just intrinsically aware of the fact that death is coming for everybody in that moment. Surely death is the greatest enemy. I'm here to tell you it's not. It's not the greatest enemy because death has been defeated. In Christ, death is no longer a reality, only life. Amen? It's not evil, it's not death. What is the greatest enemy of man? Surely it must be the devil. Because he was the one in the garden, right, who brought the the idea to Adam and Eve of this this eating of the fruit, disobeying God. Surely it must be the enemy, the one who is is stirring up and causing us to, to falter, the one who wants to sift Peter like wheat, the one who roars around like a lion looking to see who he may devour. Surely that's our greatest enemy in this room. I'm here to tell you, it's not. Because he's been defeated. The head of the snake has been crushed on the cross, Satan's power was emptied. All he can do is lie. He is, the head has been cut off. His full end has not been realized yet, but he is done away with. So the greatest enemy is not the devil. It must be eternal hell. That must be the greatest enemy. The greatest concern for us today must be eternal hell. Well, I'm, tell, I'm here to tell you that it's not because Jesus on the cross actually made it possible to go the other way. He made it possible to have eternal salvation rather than eternal damnation. So what is the greatest enemy of man? What is the greatest? If all of these things have been purchased, all of these things have been put to death, all of these things have been conquered on the cross of Christ, then what is the greatest enemy facing you and I? Well, I might suggest that it's actually not something outside of you as much as our culture likes to tell us that we are good and the enemy is out there, the enemy, oftentimes, the thing that we need to be afraid of, oftentimes is actually inside it's inside of us. There is a greater enemy. There's an illustration that I think captures this. Uh, if, if you guys have seen Lord of the Rings or read the books, uh, J.R. Tolkien's um, his, uh, trilogy there, there's this really an, an amazing kind of a sub-narrative um, in the book. If you guys remember, uh, the main kind of story is that there's this, this evil that is sort of overtaking the earth and, and uh, the, the main story kind of highlights on the hobbits, you know, taking this ring of power into the, the, the mountain. But there's a sub-narrative in the book that's really interesting that Tolkien kind of uh, plays on in the first book. And it's this, this, this other character named Aragorn. Uh, they call him Strider. Okay, and, and he's, he's basically the, the, the next one in line to usurp the throne of men. He's the one. He's been given, uh, because of his lineage, he's been given this, this privilege to be the one who can unite the realm of men and march against the gates, right? That's who he is. But he's afraid of stepping into that role. He's afraid of taking on that position. And he has this amazing kind of dialogue with uh, Arwen, where she asks him, she says, why do you fear the past? See, the backstory to the movie, if you see it, is that his great, great, great grandfather was the one that could have destroyed the ring, but he chose not to. He gave into this inner weakness that he had. And so Arwen, she asks Aragorn, she says, why do you fear the past? You are Isildur's heir, not Isildur himself. In other words, you are the one that has been given this privilege to be able to step up and unite all of the men and march against these gates and destroy evil. You're the one that can do it. And he says with fear 
and humility in his eyes. He says to her, he responds, he says, the same weakness that flowed in his veins, my father's father's father flows in my veins. There is this weakness that has been passed down and and he is afraid of taking on what he's been designed to do and called to do and born to do because he fears what's inside of him. His greatest enemy is not evil. His greatest enemy is not the black gates. His greatest enemy is not the orcs. His greatest enemy is what's within himself. As Christians, our greatest enemy is not out there. All of those enemies have been conquered on the cross of Jesus Christ. As Christians, our greatest enemy, or even as non-Christians, our greatest enemy is the thing inside us that would keep us from believing that Jesus is the way to salvation. This thing is called unbelief. It's the thing that was in Adam and Eve in the garden. You might say, well, Adam and Eve fell because of sin or because of temptation or because of the enemy or because of the the, the garden that they were placed in. But in reality, they sinned because they chose to not believe God. Israel was condemned in the Old Testament not because they couldn't obey the rules, not because they couldn't get the law right, not because they screwed up. They ultimately went apostate in the Old Testament, Israel did, because they refused to see that God was their means of salvation. It was unbelief. They were condemned for their lack of faith, not for their lack of works. See, even within the law, God created a way for them to to bring their failures and their forgiveness and, and to offer sacrifices. He wanted to be their source of salvation. He wanted to be, God always wanted to be for Israel, the one who would save them. It was his delight to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and through the Red Sea and into their land. It was his delight to to restore them back into their home after they were exiled from Babylon. It was his delight to heal them. But this thing within them, passed down from their father and their mother, Adam and Eve, this one enemy was this refusal to believe that God would save them and could save them. So they turned to idols. They turned to any other savior they could possibly turn to. What is the greatest enemy that we face? It is this thing within you called unbelief. This thing that wants right now to keep you from believing the gospel that can transform your life. That is the greatest enemy. In our text today, Jesus is having a conversation like he so often was when when he's preaching. uh, And and he's asked a very interesting question. So I want to dive into what that question is. Let's pick it up in verse 22. What I want to talk to you guys about this morning is salvation. I want to talk to you about what gospel it is that you have believed. Everyone in this room has believed a gospel. And you say, what do you mean by gospel? Uh, Gospel just means good news. Gospel is what you believe is your source of salvation. What you believe the thing is that's going to save you. Everyone in the world believes a gospel. Some people's gospel is their own body, their own health, their own wealth, their own security. Some people's gospel is an alternative religion. Some people's gospel is reincarnation. Everyone believes a gospel. And this morning, I just want to ask you guys, do you have the right one? (laughs) Are you believing the right gospel? Because this is what Jesus is trying to get his audience to look and to consider. So picking it up in verse 22, chapter 13, it says, He, being Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages teaching. And journeying toward Jerusalem. Now, I just want to pause right there. Okay, just a side note here. Luke is very intentional about telling us that he is on his way to Jerusalem. 
Why is, he, why, is he, why is he so intense? This is the fourth out of nine times in the book of Luke alone that the, the gospel writer who organized this content, organized this material, it, 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 this is the fourth time that he has been very clear in telling us that Jesus is not just haphazardly going through his ministry, teaching in whatever city he feels like, preaching wherever village he feels like. Jesus is on a mission. Jesus is headed somewhere. He's going somewhere. Jesus knows where he is going to end up. And that place that he's going to end up is Jerusalem. And that's why Luke continually reminds us. Now, I want to pause in the narrative right there and skip down to verse 31. I just want to show you something really quick about this trail that Jesus is on to Jerusalem. Verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod. Okay, that's Herod Antipas. You might remember him from uh, Jesus' encounter in the, in the crucifixion. He had, uh, was interviewed by Herod. Verse 32, he said to them, go and tell that fox. Okay, so Herod wants to kill him. He says, go and tell that fox. Interestingly, the only time Jesus kind of insults somebody, uh, he calls him basically a varmint. Go tell that good for nothing, shifty, lying fox. And this is what he tells him. He says, go tell, go tell Herod, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish from Jerusalem. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, I have somewhere to be. Who is Herod? Herod was basically the puppet king of the Romans. The Romans would empower someone who they thought would be understood by the people so that they could gain a little bit of face uh, with the Jews. So they, they empowered this man, Herod, whose father was Herod the Great, the one that killed all of the babies when Jesus was born. Uh, Herod had three sons. One of them was Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the, the puppet king governor of the Galilean area. He wants Jesus dead. Join the club. Everybody wants Jesus dead at this point. The the religious leadership wants him dead at this point. Uh, It's it's building, okay? And so they come, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, hey, Herod wants you dead. You should get out of here. And we don't know what their reason is for bringing that up. But Jesus' response is awesome. His response is, go and tell that fox, nobody takes my life from me. I'll lay it down. He's like, I got work to do. You think I'm afraid of this man? Understand that next to Pilate, next to Caesar, this man had some of the most power, had the most power in the area. This man could have easily gone after Jesus, but Jesus says, I'm not afraid of him. He doesn't take my life. I lay my life down. I must go on the next day and the next day and preach and teach and end in Jerusalem. Why must he end in Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem is the place where he will die. Not on accident. Not because the religious leadership had him killed, not because Pilate sent him to his death, but because he wanted to die, because he came to die, because he incarnated in order to die. That was his purpose. That was his course. And Jesus' response to them is essentially, I must finish my course. And I'm going to finish it in Jerusalem. And there's some tongue-in-cheek kind of saying here. He says, I must go on my way. Look at verse uh, 33. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Listen to what he says. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, by the way, city of peace. That's what Jerusalem means. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. He's like, I'm going to the place that if there's any place on the, wor- on the world that should receive me as the Messiah, it's Jerusalem. I'm going there because I'm going to be killed and I know it. In fact, that's why I'm going there. 
Jerusalem, the city that continually would kill the prophets. God would send his prophets to call Israel to repentance and they would kill them one after another and after another. And now Jesus, the last prophet, is coming into Jerusalem intentionally in order to die. And not just to die meaninglessly, but to die with purpose. Oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. And then he says something interesting. He said, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. That's one of the most astounding verses in the Bible. Jesus, you just see the heart of the father through Jesus, his son. And that he looks at Jerusalem later on in, in a matter of days, he'll come up over the hill into Jerusalem and he'll start weeping over the city. What was this emotion Jesus had for Jerusalem? The emotion Jesus had for Jerusalem was because he loved Israel. And Jerusalem represented Israel. And his heart was that they would repent, that they would be saved, that they would look to him to be the source of salvation that he came to be. And instead they reject and kill him. Oh, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you like a mother gathers her hands. I was watching Planet Earth the other day, that kind of National Geographic type thing. And they were showing the, the penguins, you know, everybody loves the penguins. And, and, and these, these dads, you know, they sit on these eggs for, for days upon days waiting for the mothers to come back. And, and sometimes the eggs will die. And it's really sad, but kind of amazing, these, these dads, the instinct to nurture these eggs is so strong that they will sit on them even when they're dead. Just the instinct to nurture. Jesus' instinct is the savior of the world is to come and to save. That's why he came. He came to save. And he wanted to save his people first, the Jew first and then the Gentile. He came into his city with his temple and his people with God's message to save them and they were going to kill him. But regardless of how they reject him or not, he came for a mission and his mission was to die. That was his purpose. So back to verse 22, Luke tells us with great intentionality that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He doesn't just say it haphazardly. He's reminding us, he's telling us this very simple fact that Jesus is going to the cross because that's why Jesus came. He came to die. Verse 23, and as he's teaching, verse 23, someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, that's, that's an interesting question. It's not surprising that they would ask Jesus this question because he's been teaching on the subject of salvation. He's been teaching continually on this topic, uh, uh, calling Israel to repent. Okay, remember two weeks ago, we talked about Israel being like this barren fig tree uh, and, and Jesus was calling Israel to repent of their fruitlessness and be saved, to believe in Jesus who was the source of righteousness for the nation. He's teaching on salvation. And as he's teaching on salvation, some people come up to him and they say, Rabbi, question. Me in the back. Okay. How many will be saved? Who will be saved? Will it be few or will it be many? Uh, this, is, this is a very familiar question to any of you that, that have been a Christian or observed Christianity for a while. This is the question that we all want to know. How many are going to be saved? Is it going to be everybody? Is it just going to be a few? Is Christianity open to all? Is Christianity exclusive, like so many people say that it is? Or, or is everyone ultimately going to go to heaven other than a few? This is the question that they're asking. Now, there's a few presuppositions you've got to understand. Okay, we're, this is 2,000 years later. We're in Medford, Oregon. We're thinking about smoke and camping and other things. 2,000 years ago, in this culture, you've got to understand a couple of things. 
When they come to Jesus and ask him this question of how many will be saved, they have a couple things that they believe. The first thing that they believe is that Jews, by nature, will be saved. Okay, so the default setting for a Jewish man or woman is that they will enter into the kingdom of God simply because they are Jewish, other than a few of the really bad ones. This is how they think. This is what they believe. Okay, sort of like if you're a Jew, you're probably in. Okay, on the other hand, they also believe that Gentiles, by nature, are basically all going to hell other than a few proselytes, other than a few that have repented, like your Rahab and your Ruth. This is what they taught in the Mishnah. This is what the rabbis taught the Jews. If you're a Jewish person, then you're pretty much going to make it in. The kingdom of heaven is pretty much yours. If you're a Gentile, which is anyone that's a non-Jew, you're pretty much, you're going to hell in a handbasket. Can I say that? I don't even know what that saying means. Okay, but this is what they thought. They thought if you're Gentile, you're out. If you're a Jew, you're in. And so they come to Jesus asking him this question, but they're confused, okay? They're confused because not everybody is embracing Jesus. The Old Testament prophets told them that when Jesus, the Messiah, they didn't know his name was Jesus, but when the Messiah would come, Israel would all embrace him. And here is Jesus, the king, on the scene claiming to be the Messiah, and yet many of the common folk are going after him, but the religious elite, the powerful, the rich, they're rejecting him. In fact, they want him dead. Herod is rejecting him. The, the puppet king of the land is rejecting him. And they're confused. What is the deal? They may be asking this question because they want Jesus to affirm their, their Jewish superiority. They may be expecting him to say, yeah, you guys for sure and because you, you know, your father was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is who Jesus is, is speaking to, and this is the presuppositions that they're, they're bringing to the table. But Jesus doesn't dance around the issue. I love that about our Lord, man. He just goes straight for the jugular, okay? He doesn't go, yeah, let me hypothesize about the sovereignty of God. I mean, this is what we would expect uh, someone to say at this point. Well, you know, uh, God will uh, save these guys and not these guys and, and these ones and not those ones. Not the Samaritans, but he'll save, you know, he'll save the Galileans, but he'll, he'll save the Judeans, the Egyptians are gone. That's not what Jesus does. He, in fact, he takes the pressure off of that and he puts it immediately onto them, like he always does. He says, I'm actually going to ask you a question, or I'm actually going to, I'm going to call you to something. So look at 23. Someone said to him, Lord, will these who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. It's very interesting. Jesus doesn't right away, at least, doesn't really answer their question. He just immediately calls them into action. Why does he do that? I think he, I think he does that because he knows that those that are asking him are coming sort of feeling comfortable, sort of feeling like for sure they're going to make it in. And Jesus goes, actually, you have to strive to make it in. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to happen by accident. It's actually going to be something you're going to have to search for. He, sells, he tells them not just to strive, but he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Jesus is trying to paint kind of a picture for our mind here of a city. Now, you've got to understand that ancient cities in the Middle East, the door, especially the main door, was really the, the epicenter of everything. It's where business transactions, the gate, took place. Okay, it's where important people hung out. And Jesus is saying, he's saying that the, the, the broad way here, the main entrance in is actually not how you get into the kingdom of God. 
The way that you get into the kingdom of God is this tiny little entrance over off in the bushes that no one notices and no one thinks about. The entrance that no one of importance uses. The entrance that nobody that has, that has carts and, and, and livestock and finances and things to get into the city. No one that wants to be seen uses. It's the entrance that someone that doesn't want to be seen uses. It's the entrance of someone who's kind of ashamed to enter the city. Someone who doesn't have anything on their back. They're just, they just literally have themselves. They enter through this narrow gate. And he says, if you want to get into the kingdom of God, you have to strive to enter in through the narrow gate, not the main entrance into city, but the small one, the insignificant one. That's what he's basically saying there. Those looking for the quickest and easiest and least burdensome interest would use the wider door, just be the natural path. Jesus reaffirms this in Matthew chapter 7. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. So the way to be saved is it's not an easy thing. It's something that you actually have to strive at. Now, look at verse 24, the second half. He says, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter through the narrow door. Now, I thought that is interesting. He says, there's this door. That it's the only actual door into the city, and many are trying to find it. Now, just as a side note here, I think we've been tricked in our culture into thinking that that. Basically, everyone, um, oh, I shouldn't say our cult. We've been tricked in Christianity, I think, to thinking that, that really no one's really seeking the Lord. Everyone is seeking their version of the Lord. <laughs> Many are trying to get in. The picture that Jesus paints here is that, that everyone wants to get into the kingdom. Now, not everybody knows what they're trying to get into, but all of your unsaved friends, all your unsaved neighbors, all your unsaved coworkers, they have their own version of heaven. They, and they're trying to get there. They know within them that they were made for something more, whether they admit it or not. And there are many. Everyone in the world is seeking after something. There are billions in the world desiring the transcend, to transcend into the divine. Okay? That's why we have the majority of humans in the world are actually um, religious people. Okay? In, in the West, we like to think everyone's a secular humanist. In, but in reality, almost everybody is religious in the world. And that's because we know at our core that we belong inside the walls of the gate. Amen? We know. We know we belong inside the walls of the gate. And so everyone's seeking to get there. Ultimately, heaven is a universal desire. Now, they're, they're in no, this in no way creates some kind of sense of injustice on God's part, though. Because ultimately, the reason people can't get in the door is not because they don't know where it is. It's because they don't want to go through. It's not as though this door is closed. At some point, it does close. We'll see in the story. It's that they cannot bring themselves to enter. There's something within them limiting them from going through the door. Look at verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen, okay, so at some point, the master of the house, which is Jesus and this, is risen and he shuts the door. And you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Now understand this. Don't let this pass you. This is a Jewish audience hearing this. Jesus is telling them that at some point, the master of the house, God or Jesus, is going, to, is going to stand up and shut the door on the Jews and he's going to tell them, I don't know where you come from. And they're going to go, what do you mean you don't know where we come from? We're your people. We're, we're the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are your people. Read on. Look at verse 26. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me. And there, depart from me, all you workers of evil. 
So, so they come to the door, the door closes, and they're completely dumbfounded. They're completely confused. Why are we closed out? You preached in our streets. We heard your teachings. We listened to your podcast. We were followers of your Instagram. We subscribed to your email list. You had dinner in our house. We fed you from our table. You did miracles in our country. And the biggest one that takes the cake, we're related. Jesus, you're from Galilee. I have a cousin from Galilee. We're related. You're one of us. You're a Jew. I'm a Jew. We're all supposed to get in. That's what the rabbi said in the Mishnah. We get in if we're Jews. You were here. You did miracles. What do you mean I don't get in? What do you mean I don't get in? It's not as though they're like, yeah, I didn't think I was going to get in. I didn't think they were going to. No, they're completely confused why they're not in. That's terrifying. If that's not a little terrifying to you, you need to wake up right now, okay? That means that there is a chance, there are people in this room right now that may be denied access to the kingdom of God and you will be completely shocked. You want to go even a little more intense, Matthew chapter seven, Jesus talks about this group that comes to him to get to the kingdom. He says, no, you can't enter. And they say, what do you mean? We did ministry. We cast out demons. We healed people in your name. And Jesus is like, you didn't go through the door. You were all about me, but you never followed me. You did everything to be in proximity to me and nothing to follow me. This is terrifying. The requirement of salvation is that the door be where you enter. And then verse 28, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's the weeping and gnashing of teeth? It's not speaking primarily to some kind of uh, eternal torment, although there's places in the Bible that talk about that. This is talking about the eternal torment of realizing that you have missed out, that you have not gained entrance, the weeping and the gnashing. You guys ever heard? Oh, no, I'm not gonna. Okay, there's, a, there's, a, there's an expression everyone uses called FOMO. It's fear of missing out. It's like, I, I'm so terrified that I'm going to miss out on something that it makes your guts churn. This is an intense, <laughs> this, is, this is an intense version of that. Okay, this is like, this is like I can't believe I didn't make it in. And, and, and they're weeping and they're gnashing over it. And then Jesus says, from this place where you're rejected, you'll see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Who are those? Those are the patriarchs. Those were the fathers of the Jewish faith and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves cast out. So there's this, this banquet, this feast happening, this table at the kingdom of God. And, and those that are not able to gain entrance, they can see it. And it's so despairing to them that they're not in, that they're weeping and gnashing their teeth over it. And verse 29, and people will come from east and west and north and south. Who are they? They're the Gentiles. And they will recline at the table of the kingdom of God. Jesus is telling him, hey, I know you think that you guys are all a shoe in because you're Jewish people, because you're religious people, because you're holy people, because you're, 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 you're in the temple and you're doing sacrifices and you have uh, the right pedigree and the right last name. But in fact, the ones that will gain entrance will be all of these Gentiles, the people you despise, the people that you hate, the people that eat bacon in the morning, right? They're going to get in. They're going to have a seat at the table. And you're not. Stunning words. And then he goes on to say what is often referred to by theologians as the great reversal. He says, Behold, some are last, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. 
Jesus flips them right on it. He just disorients them to the point where he can actually penetrate their hard hearts. Flips them up on their head and he says, hey guys, I know you think that you're a shoo-in to the kingdom of God, but let me assure you, there will be many people in the kingdom of God that did not think they were ever gonna make it in. And there will be many people at the door weeping that thought for sure they were in. That's intense preaching by Jesus. This is intense material. This is stuff that should make us go, what in the world? Okay, what in the world is the door? Because I don't want to be left out. I want in. And I don't want to think I'm in. I want to know I'm in. And I don't want to go through some other door thinking it is the door. I want to go through the door. What I want to talk to you guys about this morning is I want to ask you, are you believing the right message? Is the door that you have gone through the right door? Is it the real door? Is it the door that you can save, that can save you? Or have you simply tricked yourself into believing that you did? This is what Jesus, I believe, would have us to examine this morning. So I'm going to ask you six questions that I think this text illuminates. Six questions. And I want to ask, I want to poke at this morning the gospel that you believe. Because as I said earlier, everyone believes the gospel. Everyone in this room believes the gospel. I want to make sure that you are believing the right one. Just because you're believing one doesn't mean it's the right one. Belief does not save you. Faith does not save you. Faith in the right gospel saves you. I can have faith that I can fly all the way down the 10-story building to the ground. What matters is that you have faith in what is true, what is right. Okay? So six questions about your gospel. Let me first say, Jesus clearly identifies the door as faith. It's, this is not a call to work harder. This is a call to enter through the door of faith. My first question is simply this. Is your gospel big enough to save? Is your gospel big enough to save? I want you to notice in the text, don't miss this, probably one of the most important points in this passage. There is one door. Okay, now I kind of imported the other parable where Jesus talks about the broad and the narrow way. But in this particular parable, there's one door. Uno. For bilingual. Okay, one, one, well, way to ruin a serious moment. One door. Okay, there's one door. One way in and one way in only. What is the door? The door is very clearly told in John chapter 10, verse 9. Jesus says this. He says, I am the door. Could it be any more clear? <laughs> what is the door? John 10, 9. I am the door. Jesus is the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He said again in John 14, 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way. Who is the door? Oh, come on. That's like the Sunday school answer. You're always safe. Who is the door? He is the door. There is one door. Now, as Christians, we get a lot of heat for what is called the exclusivity of our faith, okay? Uh, people say about Christianity, it's such an exclusive faith because it says that anyone that doesn't believe in Jesus is going to hell, okay? And we have to deal with those kinds of questions. We have to deal with those kinds, uh, the, that kind of rhetoric when it, when it comes up. Now, I want to say two things to that. The first thing is, is that Christianity is actually the least exclusive religion on the face of the universe, 
Okay? And now, what I mean by that is not that you can believe anything you want and get in. What I mean by that is that Jesus loved those that no one else was loving. He opened the door to those that no one else would open the door to. He opened the door to those that would have doors slammed in their face the whole, their entire life. The gospel is open as wide as you could possibly imagine to anyone willing to put their faith in Christ. What makes it narrow is not that Jesus is pushing people out. It's that they refuse to come in. Okay? Just want to clarify that. Number two, when people ask you about the exclusivity of Christ... Don't ever apologize for it. Don't ever apologize for the exclusivity of Christ's message, that it is only through him. The reason you don't ever apologize is because what Romans 1.16 says, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. You don't apologize for the fact that Jesus is the remedy to the human problem. Because the gospel, the good news, is how we are saved. It is the power of God to transform us. We don't apologize for that. If I come up with the, the, the antidote or the vaccine or whatever it would be called for cancer, I am not going to apologize about the fact that there's only one. I'm not going to go to all the cancer research people that have been working hard like, sorry guys, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure yours will work too. Just keep at it. Just keep giving it to people. I'm sure like it'll all end up leading to the same. No, if they don't take it, they're going to die. And I'm not going to apologize about the fact that there is one antidote to cancer. That's the way it is. Jesus said there's one door. Don't apologize about that. It's good news that there is a door and we know where it is. It's Christ. There is a door. Jesus did not come simply because he thought it would be fun to become a human and walk around. Jesus became a man, climbed out of the comfort of heaven and glory and the Trinitarian reality, and he climbed into the, the body of a fallen, broken human being because it was the, listen, it was the only way you could be saved. There was no other way before time began within the Godhead and all of his infinite wisdom, he decided there was one way for man to be saved. The only way for man to be saved would be for God himself to become a man. He had to be a man because only a man can die for a man. He had to, be a, he had to remain God because only God can cover the sin of the whole world. He had to drink the cup of wrath completely. He had to live the perfect life because it's not enough to just forgive your sin. You're going to sin again tomorrow. He needs to forgive the sin that you haven't done yet by giving you his perfect life. He had to come and live a perfect life. He had to come and resurrect because if he didn't resurrect, he wouldn't be the firstborn of many. He wouldn't have conquered death. He had to ascend to the right end of the father because if he didn't, he wouldn't be your high priest. He had to be a man so he could relate with you like a high priest. Everything Jesus did in the way that he saved was perfect and it was necessary And it had to be done that way. There was no other way. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Do not be ashamed of that. That is the antidote to the human condition. And the worst thing we can ever do is make it seem like something that did not have to be done. Jesus had to die. It was necessary. Jesus said, if there is any other way, let this cup pass. To which the obvious answer was, there is no other way. 
The only way for man to be saved is for God the Son to die and absorb the sin and to give you his righteousness. So question number one, once again, is your gospel big enough to save? Question number two, what does your gospel save you from? What is it saving you from? If you deconstructed the average Christian gospel message in our country, you would think that you were being saved from being uncomfortable, from being depressed, from being lonely, from not having any purpose in life. Now, those things are all certainly can be true of Christianity, but does the gospel save us from being uncomfortable? That's an American invention. That's like a cheeseburger. It's here to make you happy. The gospel is not good news because it alleviates a little bit of pain. In fact, it invites hardship into your life. You're drawing the fire of an enemy now that wants you destroyed because you're giving glory to God. The gospel is not saving you from discomfort. The gospel is saving you from eternal damnation. God is saving you from his righteous indignation and wrath towards your sin. Because he is both the just and the justifier. He is the righteous one and the one who makes us righteous. Does your gospel save you from anything short of eternal hell? In this text, entrance to not enter is agonizing. Do you understand that when we are preaching the gospel to people, we're not preaching a message that might make their life a little better? We are preaching the message that gives them eternal life and saves them from eternal hell. It's important. What does your gospel save you from? Number three, what does your gospel save you to? They didn't just gain entrance into a random city. They gained entrance into the city. They gained entrance into the place that everyone wants to be. Christianity is not about just getting saved from something. It's about getting saved to someone. Do you understand that? Getting saved simply because you're afraid of hell is not sufficient to transform your life. Getting saved because you see God as the ultimate value in the universe and you want anything and everything to do with him will transform your life. There's a parable about this when Jesus says a man is in a field and he finds a treasure and it's so valuable that he goes home and he sells everything he has. Not begrudgingly, but he does it because he wants the treasure. He sells everything he has and he comes back and he buys the whole field just so we can gain the treasure. Jesus said, this is what the gospel is. It's the most valuable news you've ever heard in your life because it's about the most valuable God in the universe and you get to inherit him. He's your prize and your presence is fullness of joy. Getting in is the point. This is good news. It's the best news. This is eternal life that we might know him. I want to get in, not because I just don't want to be out. I want to get in because I want to be in with him because that's where he's at. And there is no joy apart from him. Fear is not sufficient for surrender. Did you know that 10% of people, when they are given a fatal report about the the behaviors in their life, can only 10% of people change their behaviors in their life when they are told they're going to die if they don't change? 90% can't do it. That means that when 100 people are told, if you don't stop smoking cigarettes, you're going to die in the next two years, only 10 of those people, that news is sufficient enough to actually make them change their lifestyle. 90 people would rather die than change their lifestyle. Why? Because fear is not sufficient for surrender. 
You will only surrender your life to God when you see him as greater than your life. You only surrender all that you have to God when you realize that he's better than what you have. By a billion. So much better. A fire insurance gospel cannot possibly transform your life into one that believes God is better. And a gospel message that contains within it only salvation, but not also glorification, the fact that we have a future in heaven, is not worth living for. I don't want to live for a gospel that just saves me from burning. I want to live for a gospel that gives me inheritance that God himself is going to become forever my source of worship. That's exciting. Number four. Is your gospel big enough, and this one's important, okay? They're all important, but this one's really important. Is your gospel big enough news to transform or small enough news to ignore? Is your gospel big enough news to transform or small enough news to ignore? Is it something that you can come and hear and hear and hear and continue to keep as a, as a modular piece of your life that at any time be detached? Or is the gospel such big news for you that it permeates every section of your being? That it trickles down into every part of your life? That it affects the way that you spend your money, the way that you think about yourself, the way that you think about sex, the way you think about others, the way that you think about pleasure, the way that you think about life and struggle, the way that you spend your money, live your life, do things with your body. All of it is affected by this message because it's the ultimate informing reality to everything. The call for Jesus, for people to follow him, was to be a follower, not a fan. He was calling them to be a follower, to, to, to forsake all. We don't like this, but Jesus said over and over, you are my friends if you do so whatever I command you. You're my friends if you do what I say. We look at that and we go, isn't that works? I look at that and I go, no, because if I know Jesus, I'm going to do what he says. If I don't know Jesus, I'm probably not going to do what he says. When I know him, I realize that what he says is the best thing for me. My entire life reorients. He becomes the center of everything in my life. To know Jesus is not enough to be saved. You need to follow him. The call was to be disciples. Many were around Jesus. He drew crowds. Judas spent three years with him. He was at the dinner table with him. Don't miss the point of our text here, that these guys were surprised. Jesus, or Judas spent all this time with Jesus, and at the end of the day, he never followed him. Jesus drew all these crowds. At the end of the day, they never followed him. It was a very small amount of people that actually saw Jesus as their rabbi and followed him. And they failed, and they tripped, and Peter failed. He was forgiven. There's forgiveness for tripping time and time and time and time and time again. But they followed him, and they followed him. Listen to me. A faith that means nothing and costs you nothing, affects nothing, and saves nothing. A faith that means nothing and costs you nothing, affects nothing and saves nothing. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. 
Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Do you understand how expensive the gospel was? When you understand how expensive the gospel is, there is no price you won't pay for it. It is not cheap grace. We have turned it into that in our culture. We have turned the gospel into a mushy, wishy-washy God who dotes over us without ever calling us to any hard saying, any hard repentance. The cross cost Jesus everything. And if it doesn't cost us anything, how much could it possibly mean to us? The reason I'm telling you this is because if you are saved because you think life's going to get easier, as soon as life gets hard, you're out. But if you are saved because you see that the cross and what Jesus did on the cross is the most important thing in the entire world, no amount of suffering, no amount of pain can peel you away from it. You are in. You will never let go. This was the call that Jesus put out to be a disciple. Number five. Is your gospel worth fighting to believe? Is your gospel worth fighting to believe? We have this really bad understanding of faith in our culture. It's the same understanding that we have of love. When we think about love in our culture, we think it's this feeling that just wells up from my toes to my head, you know? And so we think that's love. And then seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years into marriage, 20 years into marriage, you, you, the feeling starts to go and so you get divorced. I must not love them anymore. Love is not a feeling. Love is a choice. Love is a decision. And love must be cultivated. Love must be fought for. Love must be strived for. Faith is no different. Faith is not something that simply just wells up over me, okay? It's not like, like when you're in the crowd and, and Mel Gibson and Braveheart is, is running back and forth with his blue face, you know, and, and, and all of a sudden faith just comes over you and now you're ready to go give your life for the cause. That's not faith. Faith is a calculated decision. It says, this is going to cost me everything. <laughs> Jesus is like, I'm going to give my whole life. It's going to cost everything. It's not going to feel awesome. In fact, it felt terrible. You want to know what suffering looked like? Ask Jesus. He suffered. He gave it all. Faith is a decision, and it's something that must be cultivated. It's something that must be, we must strive for it. I want you to notice in our text, Jesus' call is to strive. That's not a call to strive to work harder. That's a, strive to, a call to strive to work harder to believe more. It's not get your stuff together. It's start believing that Jesus has accomplished everything for you. That it's there, it's accessible, it's available. The word that he uses for strive there is the same Greek word that was used um, by Paul when he talked about the, the, those that exercise and run in the races and, and, and they, they beat their bodies into submission in order to go and run a marathon or do these crazy things. He's like, it's, a, it's an active striving after his agonize. We, we get our word agonizing from the same Greek word. He's saying you need to agonize over helping yourself believe the gospel because everything in you doesn't want to. Back to the, the intro, this, there is something in us that we must fear and that is that everything in you wants to not believe this message. There is this unbelief in you 
that runs in your veins, that has been manifest through every human being that has ever lived, and that unbelief wants to keep you from believing this message. And you must strive to believe it. But let me ask you, is your gospel good enough news to fight to believe? Are you actively engaged in the fight? Are you standing firm in the gospel of peace? We must strive to believe to a greater degree. And number six, does your gospel start with a loving savior? Some of you in here this morning are feeling weight because some of you have heard all of the things that I've said and you've imagined God in your head as being this angry doorkeeper ready to slam the door in your face and rejoice that you've been left out. And I'm here to tell you this morning, I'm not here to tell you, the word is here to tell you, he is not an angry doorkeeper ready to slam the door. He is a weeping mother hen wishing that she would just let him put his wings of salvation around you and give you life. There's no accident that right after this narrow door passage, what comes immediately after? Jesus' deep lament over Jerusalem's hardness of heart. I truly believe the reason this is here is so that we would not read the parable right before it and read into it this angry Jesus, angry doorkeeper, ready to shut people out, that we would rather see Jesus as a weeping, broken, humble, loving father, wishing that his son would come home, ready to pick up his robe and run, wishing he could just bring Israel into the, into the fold, wishing that they would just repent and come into the kingdom of God. He wanted them so bad to stop leaning on their own righteousness and embrace the Messiah, to embrace him. This is why he weeps over the city. He's brokenhearted at the heart of every person in this world that refuses his salvation. It is there. It is available And it breaks his heart. Jesus, God the Son, is the perfect reflection of our Father. If we want to know how God feels about the lost, if we want to know how God feels about those that that will not make it in, look at Jesus' reaction. Jesus' reaction is a heartbroken one. He just wanted them, he wanted them so badly to realize what he had bought for them, what he purchased for them. For while we were yet still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for the righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even die. But God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Do you understand what that's saying? Jesus came to die for his enemies. He is at the door longing for you to follow him because he has the greatest gospel you could possibly imagine. As Christians, we've got to stop living like our gospel is small. We've got to stop living like our worst enemy is evil, sin, the enemy, death. Those things have been eradicated. 
their nuisances. I wish I didn't have a body that was breaking. I wish I didn't have to take my kids to the ER. I wish I didn't have to deal with the brokenness of the world. I wish sin wasn't constantly plaguing me, trying to pull me away from God. I wish, I wish hell was not a reality, but those enemies are conquered. The last enemy you and I have to fight is our failure to believe in the provision of God's perfect salvation. Believe the gospel. And to the degree that you believe it, you will live in freedom and you will transform. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to save. It's good news. What gospel have you believed? Pastor Jeremy reminded me of a great analogy this week. It's if somebody gave you a check for a billion dollars and you just rejoiced, you were excited about it, and you put it on your fridge, a little piece of tape, and you walked by and every time you saw it, you just smiled. And then three days later, you dropped dead because you never had the money to get groceries because you never took the stupid thing to the bank. This is how many of us as Christians are living. Christ has purchased for us the ultimate reality in the cross. The gospel is bigger than every problem you're thinking about right now. The gospel is bigger than every issue you can possibly imagine. We've refused to cash the check. We've refused to go down to the bank and say, God, I'm going to believe that what you said you did, you did. When things get hard, I'm going to believe it. I'm going to let the gospel be bigger than my issues. And to do that, I must face this thing within me, this thing called unbelief. I must take it on. I must fight against it. The answer to your problem today is not to do more. It is to believe more. It is not to try harder. It is to see that everything that you need has been done by Christ. Embrace it. Believe it by faith. Amen? Let's stand. Father, I'm so thankful this morning because this is just what I need. What I just need to be reminded of this every day. This message is not for new believers. God, this message is for me. This message is for all of us in this room. God, we need to just remember time and time again this good news. And Lord, we we want to orient our lives around this good news. We want it to change everything that we do. We want it to make us love people more. We want it to make us be more generous, make us be more happy, Lord. Make us be more centered. Make us be more um, stable, Lord, because we know that this is who we are. What you have done is who we are. That's our identity now, God. If there is anyone in this room this morning that has not yet received of the most valuable news in the entire universe, Holy Spirit, Allow them to enter through the door today. Help them to see you as not a harsh dictator, but as a loving father waiting for them to come home with tears in your eyes, Lord Jesus, ready to run to them. We thank you this morning that we are saved and we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.